This is the Sound Factory podcast from Sound Factory Productions. Doing it wrong, but doing it anyway. Hello and welcome to the Sound Factory podcast, the podcast about sound, music, creativity and collaboration. We're your hosts, Steve Kilpatrick, a.k.a. Sound Factory, and Dr. Oniko Toth. At CocoVocals.com. And we're doing it wrong, but, but we're doing, doing it, it anyway. anyway. <laughs> so we are blessed with the presence of the fabulous Audrey Hall today. Audrey Hall is known for her work as a radio presenter with a jazzy vibe and uniquely intimate conversations with her guests that seek to explore and gain insight into the complexities of life and the world in which we live. She works in Manchester's award-winning community radio, All FM, 96.9 FM, producing her show, Audrey's Early Drive. So, Audrey, that's my blurb about what you do, but can you explain to people who may not know your work or your vocation what sorts of things you do? Absolutely. The first thing is I am delighted that you're using the word vocation to describe what I'm doing. Obviously, you and I, Monica, have met a couple of times. You've been a guest on my show. And to describe it as a labour of love um, may sound extreme, but it really is. It's a labour of love in terms of the issues that I often find myself dealing with, which are basically local issues of international significance, that, that is how I would describe them. Um, but also in terms of the fact that people, what you find when you're working in community radio is this whole idea of community. Obviously with COVID, it's become almost a buzzword, hasn't it? People doing things to help each other, people doing things and feeling as though we're all pulling in this way together. And actually, that's what community radio is. Um, and in terms of me personally, it is a vocation because working in community radio means you don't get paid. You're working as a volunteer. I, I worked in uh, national radio uh, and television for many, many years. And I stopped in 2003. And then I came back in 2016 and since then I've been you know building back up my reputation um re-establishing myself um within the community the thing that is at the core of everything that I do is either the guest story or the music that I play because you see I have to complicate things I can't just drop in any old track the music I play of course, as you described, with a jazzy vibe, has to align with the story or the issue that we're covering. So the two are sympathetic to each other, if you like. What I do, I say we are seeking truth. We are telling it as it is. Because as a journalist, and I am very happy to describe myself as a journalist, I have bemoaned what's been happening in broadcasting over the last years. You know, from Brexit days right through to where we are today, there is so much rubbish 
put out there and there is so much put out that is dressed up as news and I mean from proper news environments that I think it's a crying shame and actually I'm fed up of hearing it I'm fed up of the bullshit I want to know what does it mean how is it going to affect me you know the normal questions the what why where how and you know what's it going to affect my heart or my bank balance that's generally what telling stories is about but the beauty of doing, I believe, what I do is getting the guests to share their stories. And by them sharing their stories, hopefully the audience, we, are getting a far better understanding of what is going on in the world and why and how and how it's actually bearing resonance in our lives. It's a very uh, important vocation, I think, especially in this time when anyone can just put anything out and is it the truth? How, how it, It's difficult. I think, you know, trying to sift through the dross of, of sort of disinformation and misinformation. Absolutely. But, you know, there's two things I think of, of importance there, Annika. Number one, you know, we're talking about what is real news. Okay, so you would take your recognised establishments, if you like. You would take them as somebody who is telling the truth. Okay. I watched this week reporting on Meghan and Harry and the Queen's withdrawal, if you like, of all royal titles because of the choice that they have made. The way he described what had happened, the language that he was using, you know, when people talk about, when they're always talking about racism and they're talking about unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The way in which he delivered the story about Meghan and Harry and where they are and what they're doing, obviously this is all fueled by the fact that they're going on Oprah. He used the word, the temerity. I'm sure he used the word, the temerity. I was absolutely appalled. Whether you agree with what they're doing or not is another thing. I thought when you tell a story... People know how horrendous it is because it's horrendous. You don't have to use words like the temerity of somebody in deciding on what they do, because what you're doing then is you're trying to influence decision. So I'm sorry, this dinosaur is staying a dinosaur. I will still do things properly and I will still have at the heart of what I do the best intention of my guest and the story and all the rest of it. You can see you've just used the word dinosaur. I would not call you a dinosaur, but is that something that because you've come from a, a, uh, an earlier generation, is that something that is a challenge and how are you surmounting yeah. it? What are some ways that you are sort of maybe having to relearn things because of the new way th ways things that things work? I think um, under the circumstances, what I'm doing is pretty amazing. I think what I would say is I'm seriously aware um, of my limitations, but I'm equally excited by the possibilities. And I'm at the stage now where I need to learn. So I want to learn, but I also need help. And recognizing that I think is also important too. So I need to, you know, I'm at the stage of working out how I'm going to do all of these things next. When we used to make film, because I worked in television as well, so when we used to make film in the old days, it was, be, you know, it was, you used to do on beta tapes or something. Mm. 
Now, and everybody, of course, at home wanted VHSs and VHSs were, were what everybody used at home, but actually they were lower quality than beta tapes. Then we go digital and, you know, we, we move from going out with a producer, maybe maybe a producer, a researcher, a sound recordist and a cameraman and me to cover a story mm-hmm. that's that, that 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 was you know that was local news so you're talking about five people it's now one man and his dog it is me with my camera held here with a, a microphone on a stick with a furry thing over the end of it and off you go yeah it's an interesting world from what i do I, i'm sort of foreseeing a point one day in the future where all musicians will be amateur because once you've got a critical mass of people doing it for free from the bedroom, we don't need to pay anybody else. Is it better? Forget all of the blah. Mm-hmm. In terms of quality now, is it better to record on tape? Is it better to have things on vinyl than CD? Is it better? I think in terms of the science and things that are measurable, Modern digital formats are way more accurate at reproducing the original sound. One of the things with things like tape and film and any of those analog processes is that it adds some kind of coloration, some kind of compression, some kind of grain in the in the instance of film. People tend to like those things. Now, the argument would be whether it's because we grew up with that and we tend to like things that we grew up with. So I love vinyl records and I love listening to things on tape and I love recording to tape, but that is where where I grew up. I would be called a a, a digital, I'm not a digital native, I guess I would be a digital immigrant in that sense. Tape and film and, and all of those formats lack the flexibility that, that the digital world has. And it's, it's an interesting question because a lot of money is spent in the digital arts in replicating the flaws, if you like, of analog. I interviewed a musician yesterday, but he was talking about jazz. He's called Paul Ashley Wheatcroft. He was part of a band called Ashley and Jackson, mm-hmm. who were big in the 90s. The big track was Solid Gold and it went to number one and MTV and all this, blah, 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 blah. But the partnership actually went sour and broke down and he's now on his own making music. But the interesting thing is he's done two albums. This guy is deeply, deeply into American civil rights. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, Annika, when I do interviews, it's not interviews. Basically, what my show is, it's social commentary. It's a conversation. It's exactly as we're doing here. Nine times out of 10, the people I'm speaking to are highly intelligent and are highly passionate and highly committed to what they're doing. And inevitably, there's going to be another dimension. So I'm interviewing this guy about two albums. The first one's called Not Too Busy to Hate. The second one's called The Soul of Hakeem Jamal. So the first thing that I want to know is who's Hakeem Jamal. Oh, great. Freedom fighter, civil rights, blah, 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 Malcolm X cousin, all the rest of it. This is sounding really interesting. You know, there's another dimension to this guy and to this guy's music. But it was so interesting. You know, I'm supposed to be talking to a guy about two albums. And what we actually talked about was human moss side mm. and black people and the reality of life. 
And what happened in the States in the 70s and what happened in the 60s and the civil rights and Bobby Seale and Martin Luther King and, you know, the two albums. And I basically make an, made an observation because the second album is jazzier and the first album is more sort of, I'm not going to say hip-hoppy, but it's more kind of, as you would imagine how you would imagine a protest song to be, you know, it's more that kind of thing, the first album, whereas the second album is more considered. So I said to him, I said, it, it seems like you've almost matured. Uh, and there's a few that have got really nice sort of cool jazzy vibes underneath them. And he agreed with me. And he said, yes, he said, he said, it's it's really interesting. He said, I think almost that jazz is a music that you 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 need to kind of grow into. It's not something that, that you're going to be into perhaps as a young person. Mm. It's as you experience life, because, because I'd experienced to him what jazz was to me. And he kind mm. of agreed with me and said, yeah, it is very much about you you being a person who's lived life almost to be able to then take this music to then let the music then allow you know to allow the music to basically take over your emotions your heart your soul your you know he sort of felt that it was something that you needed a, a maturity uh, mm. uh to get into which i i i kind of i i kind of liked it I kind of like the idea that that he he was cool with my uh, description of of jazz being a conversation because that's what I believe it is. That's mm. what I believe music is. I think it's a conversation. This is the groove, Miles. That's the baseline. This is where it takes me. This is what I'm going to do, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's about being something that allows you to go somewhere else it almost transcends you it takes you somewhere else i love the parallels that are, are, are just emerging there about jazz and also about activities of protest and fighting for the right so it reminds me very much of um there's a pat Metheny quote that i'm going to paraphrase but the gist basically is that rock and roll and uh, heavy rock and all of those kind of musics are actually much more reactionary than jazz jazz is the real revolutionary music it's the real voice of disrespecting the system i guess i think that's very interesting pat metheny is cool pat metheny obviously is a white uh, jazz guitarist i don't understand why everybody black wouldn't say yes i'm into jazz hmm. because what is it it basically is a music of protest that's where it started it is something, it is a music that is coming from the soul. It is born out of struggle, basically. So mm -hmm. all of those spirituals and this, that and the other, they, 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 they came from the plantation days. They were singing because it kept their spirits together. So for me, damn right I'm into jazz. It's mine. I want it. I want it to be mine because it is a black thing. And I don't get why people, and especially when you think of who the chief proponents are, you know, the Miles Davises, mm. you know, the John Coltrane's, Billie the Ella Fitzgeralds, yeah. <laughs> the Oliver Nelsons, the Billie Holiday. The, you know, yes, but then you start going, and when you get to Billie Holiday's, that's a different dimension because there's a whole different thing with Billie Holiday. But yes, absolutely indeed. But, you know, if you're talking Billie Holiday, the big song, obviously, is 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 Strange Fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know why every time I say Strange Fruit, I smile because it is horrendous. Yeah. But in actual fact, you know, those lynchings and things that you think disappeared, they mm. haven't disappeared. They're still happening. I have a friend, a guy called Paul Sapin, who is a really cool American film director. 
He's been in the UK and Manchester for the last 35 years. And the film that he's working on now is of kind of the last lynching in the States and it's in the Deep South and he's doing it with young kids. But do you need to be old? Do you need to have lived life? I don't know. I mean, I didn't start off as a jazzer. But, you know, if I think about the first song that I was taught, Mm -hmm. it was a jazz song. I said it on on air a couple of weeks ago. You know, my dad taught me love is a many splendid thing Mm -hmm. and sweet Lorraine. My mum was a jazz singer. So we were brought, you know, my granddad was a double bassist. He led a a jazz combo in Jamaica in Mm. the times of Navy Island and Errol Flynn when uh, he had his boat there and all the movie stars used to go over. That was my granddad. So there he is in his white tuxedo leading a five-piece combo. My mum actually didn't grow up as a jazz singer, but like most singers, you, you, you sing from being a child and you sing in the church. And from being a child, she and her sisters, because of my granddad, were performed. My mum came to the UK to be a nurse uh, she came on a nursing scholarship. My dad followed very soon thereafter. They got together and they got married, lived in Preston, then went to Chorley. But basically, my mum was discovered singing as she was working at a factory on a sewing machine singing. Mm. And the lady basically said, why, Blanche, you can sing. And my mum said, yeah, you know. And, you know, and she said, well, but no, you can really sing. And my mum said, yes. And she goes, well, you must come down to, I've got a friend, you must come down to Bloody Blah Jazz Club. So she took my mum to a jazz club. Um, I'm not sure if it was the one in Birmingham. Uh, I can't remember, but they took my mum to a jazz club and basically that was it. My mum mm. became a jazz singer. But yeah, that my, my, my first song that I was taught was a jazz song. Mm. They weren't, in inverted commas, jazz songs to them. Mm. There were songs. They were the songs of the day. That's what they were singing. That's what they were dancing to. That's what they were playing. That was the music from the States. That's what was coming out. People listening to my show would say, that's not jazz, mm. which is why I say I play, what I play is anything with a jazzy vibe, mm. because I want to open it up to the music that's being made today, all of the neo-soul, the neo-jazz, you know, the Afro beats, the, the fusion, the you know Himalayan influences, you know, whatever is happening, when you start putting things into labels, it means things aren't played. It means things are ignored, as jazz is. Mm. But in actual fact, most people know an awful lot of jazz. They just don't know that's what it is. You know, if you watch television and watch the commercials, or if you go to cinema and watch film, or if you watch documentaries, good documentaries that are made, and in fact, good drama they're doing it now, there's music running throughout. And very often they are using that kind of music because it is perfect in terms of being able to immediately bring about a feeling, an emotion, an ambiance, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Where it comes from, it's it's essentially African-American diaspora music. It's its own thing and it was created by African-American people. It's a whole new genre that was created in the States. Absolutely. I think I think what you've just said, Miles Davis would applaud you, but he'd probably <laughs> use a few mother words in there as well because his two most favourite 
phrases are. His first one is, people always say to him, what's the best song you've ever written? Mm. And he always says, it's the next one I'm going to write. Oh, good answer. (laughs) Yeah, that is a good answer. It's the next one I'm going to write. And the other thing that he says is, anybody can play. It's the attitude of the mother F that really makes a difference. Mm. So anybody can play, which they can. This digital world basically does mean everybody can play. Those very jazz musicians that you're talking about, imagine you have him and John Coltrane on on stage playing, for example, Body and Soul, or let's, let's do a Miles track, you know, Miles Ahead, or so what? I think brilliant. You know, people take that and I think so what? And I think that says, I think that says F you, so what, actually. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of so what? This is so what? Listen, this is so what? This is so good, this record. That's so what? So I think it's like the most, the, one of the cleverest, one of the cleverest titles that there is. Yeah. But you've got these guys on stage playing this music. They're not allowed to walk in through the front door. You know, Miles Davis was arrested outside of the front door of trying to get into whatever it was on 52nd Street or, mm-hmm. you know. He's like, but I'm a musician, I'm playing. They're like, yes, but you're black, you're not allowed through the front door. And he's like, I walk through the front door. No, I don't think you do. He's like, well, you're not allowed in there, sir. Well, I'm going in there. Well, we have to arrest you. And they did. Mm. So one night when he was supposed to be playing, he was arrested. Whether or not, I can't remember whether or not he was allowed in through the front door the next day. I don't know. But mm. basically, that's what was happening to these musicians. So you wonder why they stand on stage and play in the way that they play. You know, what we have is a common hurt. I wasn't aware of just how deep this was until last year and George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And last year was an incredible year for me in terms of understanding my feelings and my emotions. And it's trauma, basically. Um, But the thing that we have as black people that is common is hurt. Mm. And it's raw pain. That's why Aretha sings as Aretha sings. That's why, you know, Billie Holiday sings as she does. That's why... The young guys who are doing the business today, because there are plenty of guys rapping about whatever today. My favorite record last year is a record called Tidy, and it's by New, it's T I and then Dash and then D E, and it's by a band called Kokoroko, and it is a really, really cool record. And I was thinking, I love this, I love the beat, I love the vibe, I love the this, I, love that. I played Yusuf Latif. That's the vibe. That's the groove. That's the spacing. That's where it's come from. That's where this music has come from. My first composition tutor said, um, popular music hasn't really changed from the 50s, only production changes. It's an oversimplification, but there's a, there's a lot in that. These, these grooves go back a long way. I was really fascinated by your, your point about this um, shared trauma. And it got me thinking of one of my favorite Miles Davis albums is uh, Tribute to Jack Johnson and the parallels that he was drawing from his career as a musician and these events that you you talk about not being allowed through the front door of the club, even though they were separated by maybe 50 years, Jack Johnson and Miles Davis. As a successful African-American man, he faced all of those same things and 
everything he did seemed to just make people angry. And he just became more Jack Johnson. And, and Miles sort of has a very parallel career to that. I, I, I always feel just in music rather than boxing. Yes, and you know, that, well, that's something. You see, Steve, you see how you learn? You see why conversations are so beautiful? Because <laughs> I don't know that album. I don't know it. So yeah. that's something for me to look at. I'll probably go downstairs and find I've got it. Yeah. Uh, I've got loads <laughs> of miles. I had no idea how badly I was affected. Mm. Until I, I would be affected until I sort of took stock over what happened from June the 25th. Because what happened actually on June the 24th, Debbie Mackey died. And Debbie Mackey is the lady whose campaign I've been following. Um, it was her 17-year-old son who was murdered. Mm. And she had been the person. I basically, you know, once a month we'd have a panel discussion and Debbie Mackey would join us and we would talk about an aspect of knife crime mm. and we would bring on stakeholders and experts and panelists and this that and the other one because it you know my big thing with everything is so what right saying that we've got a problem great we've identified the problem so what what happens next it's like everybody's sharing their experiences. Oh, this is terrible. Tell us about this. Oh, how have you faced racism? Mm. What happened this day? What happened that day? Oh, really? Are you sure it was racism? Almost making black people having to prove that mm. they have had racist things happen towards them. And then there is a suggestion of, well, well, how, how bad in terms of race? I mean, that's a little racism. That, that's not as bad as bad. No, no, all racism is bad. Don't matter if it's a little mm -hmm. one or a big one. It's all bad. Yeah. All of it is bad. Well, I understand the same. I feel it the same. No, you don't because you can't. Mm. Yes. My husband, as I say, is white. And if you can imagine the conversations that we've had in our house since George Floyd. Mm. But what we're talking about here is something called white privilege. I didn't, you know, all of these things, white privilege, unconscious bias, generational discrimination, gender discrimination, obviously the things that are happening with the police, it's obvious, police accountability, brutality, civil rights, the fact that we're not treated equally, the fact that we fare worse in every single aspect of life, and we have known about this since 2017 when it was documented in five reports commissioned by the government and nothing happened. And the reason nothing happened is because as soon as these reports came out, pointing to black people struggling in every single aspect of life, almost the next day, Carrie, somebody, the Irish journalist from the BBC who resigned because she was earning less pay mm -hmm. than her male counterpart, that became the story. Right. It was all about the disparity in pay between men and women and predominantly the BBC and mm. nothing happened with those reports. I've been talking about those five reports ever since, incidentally. Mm. But nobody else seems to be bothered about those reports. Mm. And then what do we have? So I had the 24th of May, Debbie Mackey dies. The 25th of May, George Floyd happens. When these two things happened, I was actually supposed to be on holiday from All FM. Is that, how can I as a black broadcaster who has spent however long talking about all of these things, allow this to happen and not cover it. Mm. 
So I covered it. So I'm dealing with racism and the reality of it and civil rights and going all the way back to the 60s and Medgar Evers quotes, who is the Don as far as I'm concerned. Fantastic quote, which basically says, if you want to know about racism, Mm. look how you treat us in normal everyday life and then ask the question. I mean, just think about it, the indignity of it. Because of the colour of your skin, you are perceived of as less than somebody who doesn't have a brown skin, which means that everything that you do has to be done to five or ten times better to even get attention because we are not expected to even be wanting to have these things. That's another really interesting conversation because Mm. we were brought up as English. We weren't brought up black. So we have the same expectations of our little friends in school because that's how we were brought up. We are British. We're born here. Mm. My mum is British. You know, my mum will not say that she is Jamaican at all because they were invited here by Her Majesty the Queen. Mm. She came across on an invitation and they were given British citizenship. So she's British and very, very proud of it indeed. And we were brought up as British. And so, therefore, with the same kind of expectations as our white counterparts. And I only realised this difference when I got into broadcasting. We had been taught, you know, you go to school, you work hard, you pass your exams, you go to college, you work hard, you save up, you buy your own house, you become successful. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were all doing as a family. You go to school, you work hard, you study, you pass your exams. So I thought it was the same for everybody. Mm. And it was only when I got involved in broadcasting and I started to see the difference of chances for me and people who were living, say, for example, in Mossad and Hume, who who may or may not have been struggling for whatever reason, uh, suffering unemployment, that I started to realise that actually, Audrey, no, we're not all the same. And whilst you might think that you're sort of here on the first step or the second step of the ladder, they've not even thought they're not even anywhere near the ladder. When I went back to broadcasting, I didn't go back to cover black issues. I don't think you need this is the black show. This is the gay show. This is the LGBT show. This is the disability show. I don't think that you should be having the black show to talk about the black things. However, I went to All FM and I'm doing my show and I'm interviewing people and I'm just doing any, obviously I'm doing anything that they, you know, what should I do? Anything you like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I fashioned my program into this thing and I'm interviewing guests and this, that and the other. But inevitably, a lot of them are black. Inevitably, I am black, so as things happen that are affecting black people, they're affecting me. Mm. So I am going to bring that to my broadcasting, and it's brought to my broadcasting anyway. If I'm doing an interview with with anybody about whatever, we will always, always pay some reference to, you know, what's going on in the world around us and, and what's been going on in the world around us for black people has not been great since Brexit. We've had Brexit, we've had Windrush scandal, We've had Grenfell scandal, then we've had Trump, then we've had George Floyd, mm. and we're where we are now. One of the arguments that I've seen quite a lot in the media, and I'm interested to hear your point about, is a lot of members of the black community have said these problems, these awful things, have always been here. It's just yep. these scandals have just allowed people to catch a glimpse through their white privilege, I guess. Absolutely. Black people's experience. Is that your feeling that 
it's not yeah. that things have got worse. It's actually always been this bad. Personally, I think things are worse. Right. Okay. I think things are worse. And the reason I think th- things are worse is because the perception is people think things are better. So George Floyd happens. So what happens immediately? You see all broadcasters purporting to be desperate to bring on board black talent all of a sudden. Mm. Honestly, Steve, it's been a real eye-opener for me Mm. this last year. George Floyd, I couldn't speak literally. We witnessed murder. And then we watched it being described, as I say, again, using words which you would not use. Mm. And it's not that it's not happening and doesn't happen here, because it does happen here. But Mm. what we're talking about is institutionalised systemic racism that exists throughout society. So you are talking about dismantling everything. Is that going to happen? No. Mm. You know, you are talking about black people being in positions of power to do things properly you need to make informed decisions you need to take on board everybody and everybody's point of view and what we have seen what i have seen with those things that i've talked about brexit the windrush scandal grenfell and george floyd is that black people don't matter actually i know it's easy to say black people matter But the reality of it is that has to be translated into jobs. It has to be translated into social and economic opportunities. Mm. We have to be given parity. Is that likely to happen? No. I'm trying to call things out. I'm trying to say not in my name. That means I'm arrogant or I'm aggressive or I've got a chip on my shoulder or I believe that everybody's against me or I believe that I should have something because I'm black and I've, you know, I've got my hands outturned and I'm a charity. No, no. I'm saying, you know, consider us as your equals. Well, we're not. We're mm. not. I don't know if you um, would agree with this observation, Audrey, but... What I feel we're seeing is rather than an increase in in the different voices in from, from black people, what we're actually seeing is the amplification of privileged white people. The uh, Lawrence Foxes of the world seem to be the loudest voices at the minute, the ones who are claiming that racism doesn't exist or that, that they are the victims. Tell me about it. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us for so long. Yeah, let's do it again. 